0: It's Showtime! It's Showtime! It's Showtime! Ladies and germs! it's SHOWTIME! Hello everyone and welcome back to the Showtime movie podcast. It is Showtime once again. My apologies on the delay between episodes. I'm just now recovering from losing my voice and getting sick on top of that. You know, it wasn't exactly a terminal illness, but it is one that, well, I mean, directly affected my ability to talk for more than 15 seconds at a time, hence the uh, little break. I did spend the few weeks still watching movies, though, so we have a lot of content to get through. I'm also working, hopefully, on getting my TIF accreditation, which could be pretty exciting. That would be uh, coming out or I should say I would hair back on July 16th or 17th. You know, next week sometime. So that's pretty exciting. But for now, though, I do want to get to the movies we're doing today. I mentioned there's a lot of them. We have four to get to. And I'm, I'm going to kind of cheat with our first one, right? Because I'm going to do it right now without some kind of musical intro or anything like that. Only because... It's been a while since it came out and it's a tag, right? The comedy that's still in theaters which has a pretty star-studded cast, Ed Helms, John Hamm, Jeremy Renner, Jake Johnson, um Hannibal Buress, Rashida Jones, Isla Fisher. You know, it's a pretty star-studded cast like I said and it's basically about a group of men that has been playing the same game of tag since they were in grade school and the movie kind of gets started with ed helms's character who kicks things off going to tag john ham's character and he's the one who kind of gets all the action rolling you kind of learn very early on in the movie actually that ed helms and john ham you know their whole little group they've been playing the same game of tag since they were in grade school and It only is active during the month of May, right? So from the 1st of May to the 31st of May, they can do anything, anything goes, and they all want to tag the plot of the movie, really, is that they all need to tag Jeremy Renner because since they were younger, the five of them have been playing, and Jeremy Renner has never been tagged. So that is the plot of the movie, and Rashida Jones and Isla Fisher, like I mentioned, also starring. You know, I I don't really have any downsides to this movie, honestly. It's the kind of film... You go see with your buddies in a weeknight, you know, when nothing else is going on. It's not quite at the level of comedies like Superbad or The Hangover, another Ed Helms movie, but it's perhaps on a level just below those, right? The jokes are pretty funny, and while not every single one lands all the time, they come up, you know, a mile a minute. So by the time you've made sense of the bad, the one bad joke, three more pretty good ones have landed, and I think all five of the main guys are pretty funny, but Hannibal Buress and Jake Johnson are probably the ones who steal the most scenes, And I think this movie also reminds me of something I read a long time ago, and I apologize to whoever wrote this because it's totally true, and I'm sorry I can't credit you, but John Hamm is a great comedic actor. He's fantastic, you know? He's funny, and he's personal, he has great timing, and yet because of his leading man looks, I think he's been kind of cursed with that role, being pigeonholed into a leading man role, despite probably being a better comedy guy or even a great character actor versus, you know, blockbuster-style role. I think everyone knows that he's a great actor, period, from Mad Men, but I've always felt that he seems more comfortable in these smaller roles as opposed to Brad Pitt or George Clooney who have embraced their looks and and they've used them, right, in major roles. Although now that I think about it, Pitt is kind of one of those actors who could potentially be going the same way as John Hamm. You know, he's in that movie we saw some um, press release clippings of once upon a time in Hollywood, that movie he's going to be in with Leonardo DiCaprio, but whatever, you know, I'm not going to go too much into Brad Pitt. He's not in tag. At the end of the day, it's a pretty funny movie. And it made me laugh quite a bit. And I can't think of really a better recommendation for a comedy, right? Certainly for other kinds of movies, but for comedy, I've said before, the worst sin a comedy can commit is to not be funny. I said as much on Twitter, and you know what? Ed Helms personally liked my tweet, so I rest my case on that point. But I think it's worth your time. I went to see it on a Tuesday, and I went to see it for basically half price because that's the cheap night here in Canada. So if you do that, I don't think you'll be disappointed. Frankly, if you spend full price on it, you know, you spend the full $11, 12.99 to see it on a weeknight, I don't think you'll be disappointed. But in terms of value, if you're go, if you going to see this movie for like $5, I, I cannot imagine you'll be disappointed because i think if you're going to see tag you've probably accepted some things about the movie you've probably accepted that it's a little silly that the concept is silly that you're pretty much going to just see slapsticky kind of humor so in that sense i think if you're going to see it my review or other kind of things probably won't sway you one way or another but i do think that word of mouth can potentially potentially be important to the people who you know, are are deciding whether they want to see tag or whether they want to see blockers, let's say, right? And frankly, I think tag is a funnier, better-made movie than blockers, even though it has a different kind of message. I mentioned Superbad in the Hangover, and Tag is much similar, much more similar to the Hangover, whereas Blockers is much more similar to Superbad, right? So they're kind of different kinds and styles of comedy coming of age versus just guys being dumb kind of thing. But at the same time, I think tag is funny. And I think you would enjoy it. Let's move right along to the next movie that I've seen over the last few weeks. And it is one of the bigger blockbusters of the summer, though I don't necessarily have a very positive opinion of it. But let's get right into it. This is the review for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. I'll tell you the problem with the scientific power that you're, that you're using here. Uh, it didn't require any discipline to attain it. You know, you read what others had done and you, and you took the next step. You didn't earn the knowledge for yourselves, so you don't take any responsibility for it. You stood on the shoulders of geniuses uh, to accomplish something as fast as you could, and before you even knew what you had, you, you patented it and packaged it and slapped it on a plastic lunchbox, and now you're selling it. You want to sell it. Well, <laughs> I I don't think you're giving us our due credit. Our scientists have done things which nobody's ever done before. Yeah, yeah, but your scientists were so preoccupied with whether or not they could that they didn't stop to think if they should. I usually start the reviews on the podcast, as you guys know, with some kind of musical cue, right? I know I've done the dialogue thing in the past, but I thought those words that you just heard, which of course are from 1993, the original fantastic Jurassic Park that still holds up, you know, Jeff Goldblum's Ian Malcolm under those famous words when we kind of first meet him, right? Kind of a little bit into the movie. And he returns for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, which, of course, we are reviewing right now. But I chose those words because if you take out scientists and, you know, scientific intent and whatever else he says about the scientists and you replace them with filmmakers. I think you have a what a about 40 second succinct one clip recap of this film if you honestly if i just recorded myself saying movie maker or filmmakers or whatever and i just dubbed it over or filled it in into the what he just said you would have a great just lesson about jurassic world fallen kingdom right like 2015's jurassic world the first one made so much money it made just an unbelievable titanic amount of money and so much so that a sequel was inevitable, right? It, it was just a shame that Fallen Kingdom was so lazily, just so lazily made. I think they, like, I do think they care. I do think J.A. Bayona, who's a fantastic director, I think he cares. It's just, I don't know if it's just tired now or what's the point anymore, right? I mean, here, okay, here's a brief synopsis of this movie. After the events of the first film, or the or Jurassic World, the park that actually got open to the public, you know, everything goes awry there. Claire, who is Bryce Dallas Howard's character, and Owen, Chris Pratt's character, they travel back to the ruined park to track down the Velociraptor Blue, the one that Chris Pratt raised at the behest of a corporation who's, of course, as usual, their true intents are much more sinister than they outwardly appear. And you learn that, we kind of see it in the trailer, you learn that they decide to weaponize these dinosaurs and use them and sell them to, you know, corporations and arms dealers and terrorists and stuff all over the world, right? And one of the big themes of the original film was people underestimating the raw power of nature. And, of course, the nature is represented in these movies by the different kinds of dinosaurs, right? And as you expect, it happens again in this movie. But in the the way it happens... Is just so unbelievable even for movies that are about making dinosaurs from like mosquitoes from frozen in amber or whatever, you know? Like the humans in this film not only they believe that they can build a creature using DNA from the deadliest creatures to ever walk the earth, but that they can control it as well, right? Nothing would ever go wrong, certainly. It's just a transparently lazy retread to me of the plot of the first Jurassic World, except that it felt like the filmmaker said, how can we make this movie even worse? How can we make this creature even more evil, which will, of course, make things even worse overall together, right? It's just it's just a silly concept in general and then when they add a lot of silly things and then silly and annoying, frankly, characters to the mix, it's not very fun, right? Because a part of the original movie, the very first one from which we heard the clip, is that all, all the characters were in some fashion intelligent. Like certainly Ian Malcolm is supposed to be a little annoying and, you know, this like sexy mathematician. And yeah, sure, okay, is that really real? No, probably not. Is Dennis Nedry, the hacker who kind of initially ruins everything, is that supposed to be... Really, a, a real tr- like a trope. Certainly, it's a trope. But is that supposed to be a real kind of character? Probably not, right? It's all it's all silly, right? But because because they had real things to do, it didn't feel. I don't know. I don't know what the correct word is bad (laughs) it just it it just seems so unnecessary right like here's here's what i'm kind of getting at pratt and howard are fine okay owen and claire they're the main characters they're given a lot to do and while some of the things they do are you kind of you kind of think to yourself wow they do this i usually you can look past it because they're the original characters they were in the first one as well and i think all things considered they have okay chemistry probably not amazing chemistry but i mean their romance is not exactly the crux of the movie, even though you do get them making out a little bit, right? It's not really about that. It's about the dinosaurs, right? But the other characters in this movie, my God. Systems analyst Franklin, for example, who is Justice Smith's character. He is this kind of hacker, I guess, hacker analyst. And all he does is just scream. He just screams at every point of the movie. I don't like the dinosaurs. Ah! Oh, I'm afraid of dinosaurs. Ah! Like, it's just... Why is this guy in the movie? He was in the movie for more or less no reason, and he was annoying in every single scene he was in. And then you have Zia, who is played by this woman named Daniela Pineda. I've not seen her in other movies. She's a pretty good actress, but her character is so annoying. She's a paleo-veterinarian who is mean to Franklin right off the bat, and she makes a very specific point on the phone to some donor. They work for some kind of dinosaur awareness organization, and... She makes a very specific point on the phone to some political representative about having... She's a paleo-veterinarian. She's studied to be a paleo-veterinarian. She knows all these things about being a vet for dinosaurs, but has never seen a dinosaur? How does that even work? And then you have perhaps the worst example, Maisie Lockwood, who was played by Isabella Sermon, and this girl is, I think, I want to guess 12, 13 years old. It's pretty young. And while the character herself, like the actual child actor, is fine, I usually have a big problem with child actors, and Maisie Lockwood is a pretty good actress, it would seem, but her character is the most transparent plot device to ever join a movie, probably, serving absolutely no purpose other than to set up a potential sequel. The the moment, I don't want to really ruin it, because I think this movie is corny in a really ridiculous way, and I think... If you see, I don't want to spoil what happens at the end of the movie, but there's a choice that Isabel—or rather Maisie Lockwood, Isabel's character, that Maisie and Claire kind of wrestle with at the very end of the movie. And and I was—honestly, I was shocked when the movie showed some restraint. Claire's character, Bryce Dallas Howard's character, showed some amazing restraint in what she does at the very end of the movie— and it's all undone for the stupidest damn reason by this little kid. And, and it serves no purpose other than to set up the kind of finale montage of scenes that clearly sets up Jurassic World 3, which they're obviously going to make because Jurassic World 2, Fallen Kingdom, has made just an ungodly amount of money. I don't know. It's just really silly. Clearly, I'm upset about it. I'm mad that I wasted my money on this movie. I'm mad that I care so much about Jurassic Park because I love Jurassic Park. Right. And, uh, and I swear to God, if you tell me that Jurassic World or Jurassic Park 3 is a better movie than Jurassic World 1 or 2, even though I don't like this movie, I will fight you. Jurassic World 3 or Jurassic Park 3, I should say, my apologies. Jurassic Park 3 with the Spinosaurus and the like birdcage with the pterodactyls, that movie sucks. That movie is easily by far the worst movie in the Jurassic Park series. It sucks. And if you tell me it doesn't suck, or at least that it sucks less than these two world movies, I will fight you. Fight me. Fight me right now. (laughs) But I don't know. It's just, I mentioned the film was corny. Some of it is kind of fun, but some of it is not. Honestly, like there's an example where Zia, who is absolutely no danger to begin with, she picks up a gun and points it at the great white hunter and all the other dinosaur hunters who outnumber her literally 10 to 1, right? They in turn respond, of course, by pointing their guns at her, and then moments later they all lower their weapons. Like, why does that scene even exist? Because they just walk away with no confrontation, and the dialogue that happens is not even expository. It's just... Yeah, look at this badass woman, Zia. And then she just gets captured anyways, which was going to happen regardless, right? I don't really understand why that's in there. There's another moment where you see the villainous Eli Mills, who's played by Ray Spall. He sits in front of a computer monitor as, you know, they're selling the dinosaurs, and his bank account, the numbers are literally increasing in the reflection of his glasses, right? It's just also cartoonish. It stretches the limits of believability again for a universe where dinosaurs are recreated with specks of blood, right? Oh, I don't know. I've really ragged on this movie, so you know what? I should say something good. And if nothing else, there are some, some pretty striking visuals. Watching the volcano erupt as Claire and Owen try to escape the island, Isla Nublar, is is pretty cool to watch. Honestly, it really is. And it's complete with a pretty entertaining moment involving Chris Pratt and molten lava, and it's that's probably the funniest and best part of the movie. And the film's lone emotional moment comes about halfway through. I don't want to really spoil it again, but When you see it, you'll know immediately what I'm talking about. It's it's before they get back to the mainland, but while they're still kind of on the island-ish, kind of. So you'll see it what I'm talking about, and it's kind of sad. And then the movie just kind of goes to complete crap after that. I mean, not that it was particularly good beforehand, but it's just this movie is a particularly specific example of a great idea and terrible execution. You know, at the very least, the ending of the movie and that kind of finale montage that I mentioned seems to promise a more interesting premise for a sequel. Kind of like in the same way the Planet of the Apes movies have evolved over time, and I, you all know that I've a, a very, I've waxed poetic about how much I love those movies, so it has a potential to reset this franchise in a huge, much needed way. But as for this movie right now, I think you can just skip it, read the cliff notes, listen to my like five, 10 minute review and then move on or just wait for Netflix. Don't pay for this movie. Please don't do what I did and pay for this movie. I even ate those stupid Doritos, those blue steak Doritos. And it's supposed to be, I had this conversation with a coworker actually, are they supposed to be blue, like, Velociraptor flavored? Or are they supposed to be like, blue steak? You know, like, rare blue steak, The you know, when you just kind of grill it on one side and grill it on the other side? I think it's pretty clearly supposed to be like, Velociraptor flavored, but my coworker disagrees. Regardless, I went deep into the preparation of this movie because I thought it looked at least fun, if a little mindless, and it's not really even all that fun, okay? So, I suggest... Probably waiting for Netflix on this one. Okay, let's get to something maybe a little more positive, let's say. I mean, I don't think this next movie was as good as the first one? Hey, maybe that's the new theme for this week's episode. Sequels that are not as good as the first. Although, you know what? No, now that I'm thinking about it, that's probably not quite fair because Ant-Man and the Wasp, which we'll get to at the very end, maybe that's a bit of a spoiler, but that is the fourth movie we're going to tackle on this week's podcast. And I think that movie is better than the first one, but they're both very low-key, Ant-Man and Ant-Man and the Wasp, very low-key movies as opposed to the rest of the blockbuster Marvel movies, right? So Maybe the whole sequel idea is not super fair, but this movie in particular, it's definitely not as good as Sicario 1, but I think it's a pretty good thriller, probably one of the more exciting movies I've seen this summer at the very least. So without further ado, let's get right to it. Sicario, Day of the Soldado. Before we get started, I think it's important to say that this movie was probably expected to be totally different from the first one from the get-go outside of the characters it uh, presents to the viewer, right? Emily Blunt, who was the star and probably the conscience of the first one, she's not in this film at all, not even a little mention. Denis Villeneuve, the Canadian director, he did not return and neither did Roger Deakins, director of photography slash cinematographer, right? Josh Brolin and Benita del Toro both do return to reprise their roles, but the first one was kind of about the moral quandaries, the gray areas of doing what's necessary to accomplish an objective, When is too far, does that idea of too far even really truly exist at all? That was the, what the first one was about, right? Whereas the second one, I'm not really sure what it's about. It seems to be more about... This one guy, Benicio Del Toro's character, Alejandro, and his relationship with Josh Brolin's character, as opposed to any deeper themes. I mean, we, we certainly learn a little more about Del Toro's daughter, who was killed before the events of the first film. And later on, his character, Alejandro, he meets the film's other main character, Isabel, who is played by a 15-year-old girl whose name is also Isabel. That's super weird to me, by the way, when films and TV shows do that. Like, you're telling me there's no other name that could have worked there? Anyways, she was in... Transformers 5 most recently, and she's far better in this movie. And I was pretty annoyed with her character in Transformers, but she's pretty excellent in this movie. But regardless, the movie itself, it's just not as complex or as elegant as the first one. I don't really think that necessarily makes it bad by any means. It's just a little bit of a letdown from the highs of the first film, right? It's more of a generic thriller, more of a hammer, let's say, when the first movie was a scalpel. Okay, I I honestly think that the first Sicarii was a visually stunning, thought-provoking movie done expertly by both Villeneuve and, and Deakins, whereas this one is more in the vein of common action tropes, right? There's far, far more brutal violence in this film, whereas in the first one, it was implied or done off screen. You know, the menace of the first one is really what's gone. The foreboding is really what's gone. Let me give you an example of what I mean when I use the hammer and scalpel analogy, Okay. This movie starts off by having several Middle Eastern suicide bombers run into a bulk barn type store and kill themselves in a terrorist attack, okay? So, of course, the American military in this film then goes and interrogates a bunch of Middle Eastern people, and then somehow this movie relates it back to Mexico and drug cartels. You know, someone with brown skin, I hated that beginning, because it draws terrorism into this movie for no other reason than to further the idea that brown people are terrorists. The overarching plot is started because these terrorists are brought into the, sh- into the U.S. via a ship that was sent via the drug cartels. And so Brolin and DeTorre's characters are set upon the drug cartels to incite instability. Like, what? There's, there's legitimately a scene after the bombing of the store where you see Mexican immigrants trying to cross the border you know, illegally in the middle of the night, uh, crossing into Texas. And one of them is these terrorists And what is he doing in the middle of the night? He busts out his prayer rug, kneels on it, and then detonates the explosive and kills himself, right? So what in God's name does that scene have other than to say to audiences, see See these damn brown people killing everyone from innocent Americans to soldiers to even innocent illegal Mexican immigrants? It has no purpose and is lazy. You know what? Frankly, the movie would never have done that because the first movie actually knew what the meaning of the word restraint was. This movie never touches on the idea of terrorism ever again, as it from that point onwards then becomes about destabilizing a drug cartel via kidnapping the head dude's daughter and blaming it on the other cartels, hence the girl from Transformers 5, and that's what the movie goes on to be about. It's just so silly. It's so dumb for that to be the frame of reference for this entire film, and it's disappointing, you know? There are some interesting moments, certainly, like when Del Toro and Isabella stumble through the Mexican desert, they meet the mute farmer, they briefly explore the idea of this Sicario, this hitman, being kind to a random stranger, and then, you know what, five minutes later, he's being tied up and tossed to the back of a trunk because of a random coincidence. And I know that's a dumb criticism, because... If you take out those random coincidences, the impetus for conflict in a movie is gone, right? So those things have to happen in, I suppose, some fashion. But I just certainly felt that there could have been a better way, right? Because of that, the beginning of the film really soured me on it. But there's no moment in this movie that is like the moment where, for example, Emily Blunt, Benito Del Toro, and Josh Brolin are on their way back through the... Um, American and Mexican border, right? Uh, they come back into Texas and there's this crazy tense moment where they're driving through the border and they stop kind of just inside, the, or they're, they're stopped I think either before or after they get through the border, right? That kind of wh- where the cars drive through the little turnstiles where you speak to the c- customs officers and they're driving through and there's a moment where they're following someone and then there's a shootout at the border, right? And it's so tense and you're not sure what's going to happen and it's so well done in the first one. There is no moment like that in Sicario de of the Soldado. I'm not saying that it's a bad movie, okay? It's just kind of mediocre. Whether or not you think that means bad, I think is necessarily up to you. But I don't think it's bad like Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom was bad, or other movies I've reviewed on this podcast are bad. The Mummy, for example, right? No, it's not that bad. It's just mediocre. Like I said, I think this is a pinnacle of you know, go see this in a night where you have nothing else to do or even better, just wait for it to come to your on-demand channel or, you know, Netflix or something like that. And I feel like that's why people listen to this podcast because you want to know if you should spend your $15 in a night out, probably more than 15 bucks, $15 a person per ticket, not including dinner, let's say, or booking the babysitter or let's say buying popcorn and, and a drink and whatnot. And you know what? If that's why you listen, if that's the only reason you listen to me, I'm totally okay with that. But as far as Sicario De The Soldado goes, it's definitely not worth booking The Babysitter for. Definitely not. Please wait for it to come to On Demand if you're going to see it, because this is the kind of movie that's going to be in the bargain bin at Best Buy in, like, four months. I feel like the reviews of all three of the movies we've talked about so far in this episode have been, uh, let's say, tepid at best. You know, I don't. I don't mean to say I've been holding back, I just mean to say perhaps that Tag is easily better than, or at least maybe I should say Tag is the movie I enjoyed the most between that one, Jurassic World, Fallen Kingdom, and Sicario Day of the Soldado, right? So it's a great pleasure then that I left Ant-Man and the Wasp for the very end because it's so much fun. It's funny, it's charming, it's low stakes which is nice and refreshing so without further ado let's get to the review of marvel's latest adventure ant-man and the wasp you know in a movie universe where superheroes gods and titans are battling each other for the power to change every little facet of reality as we know it it can sometimes get a little overwhelming so in that sense ant-man and the wasp is honestly a really fantastic way to kind of put your feet up take a little breather you know it's fun it's compact i don't just mean that because it's about tiny little ants right but it tackles relatively low stakes and like i said in the bridge to get here it's comfortingly refreshing you know I don't know if you guys remember, but the last time we actually saw Ant-Man was not in 2015, which is when the first Ant-Man movie came out, but it was in actually 2016 when Captain America Civil War came out. And, you know, there, Paul Rudd's Scott Lang fought with, of course, Captain America uh, with I forget who else was on his side, but, you know, they fought against Iron Man, Black Panther, Spider-Man. and at the end of that fight, it ended up with him imprisoned aboard the raft, an underwater jail designed for superpowered criminals. And I mean, that was really cool. And Iron Man <laughs> dismisses him, and it was a pretty funny interaction between Paul Rudd and Robert Downey Jr. But as far as Ant-Man and the Wasp goes, we fast forward two years later, and Scott, as we saw in the trailer, is now under house arrest, and he's serving out the remainder of his sentence at home in America. Hank Pym, who's played by Michael Douglas, and his daughter Hope Van Dyne, who's played by Evangeline Lilly. They come calling again, and then his latest adventure is underway, right? It's honestly a really simple movie. The plot is simple, and it really relies, the movie in general, it relies on the charisma of Paul Rudd to get from scene to scene. And that is not a flaw. That's not a criticism. Director Peyton Reed, who comes back for the sequel, he obviously knows how to maximize Paul Rudd, right? But what's even better about it is that he knows how to maximize evangeline Lilly, who returns his hope and I, I if you i don't know if you guys remember evangeline Lilly, of course has been in a lot of stuff but she was i mean she was uh kate in lost the tv show my favorite tv show of all time so i'm always already a little predisposed to liking evangeline Lilly. but um you know of course she was in real steel as well i believe that was a uh, perhaps not as a big movie as i think it deserved to be because it was pretty good honestly all all things considered but as the title of this movie indicates, she takes on her mother's mantle, Hope Van Dyne, takes on uh, Janet Van Dyne's mantle as the Wasp, and she kicks ass. She kicks some serious ass. Like, Not only is she the coolest, most ferocious character in this entire film, but she probably ranks up there with some of the MCU's finest warriors, male or female. She's just so much fun to watch. And again, I know I maybe I'm a little biased because I already like Evangeline Lilly, but Hope Van Dyne is such a cool character and she also lost the really weird like businessy bob haircut from the first one has a more normal haircut in this movie (laughs) maybe that was uh, Evangeline Lilly's doing because I feel like that was a really weird criticism of the first one that like her haircut oddly I don't know if it had something to do with her being a woman or what anyways Hope Van Dyne awesome one of my favorite if not my absolute favorite part of Ant Man and the Wasp But the film also delves into the whereabouts of the original Wasp, Janet, like I mentioned, host mother, Hank's wife, and audiences never actually saw her face in the first movie, probably because they just hadn't cast her back in 2015, but they actually put a face to the name in one of the movie's very first scenes, and it's Michelle Pfeiffer. She joins as Janet Van Dyne, and she doesn't get a lot of screen time because the movie is basically about them trying to find her, because if you remember, Janet was lost to the quantum realm when she shrinks down to be subatomic, and kind of gets lost to the quantum realm and it's implied that Scott, when he goes to the quantum realm at the end of the first one and escapes, either saw her or that she's still alive or that at the very least, that since you can get there and come back, that it's possible that she is still alive, right? Anyway, so it's fun to see her with Michael Douglas. Honestly, uh, somehow the two of them were never in a movie before now together despite being two of the most famous actors on earth for the better part of like two decades it's pretty crazy but it's cool to see them on screen together and man of the wasp also doesn't really have a real villain i would argue there's an antagonist i don't necessarily think villains and antagonists are always the same thing i think they usually are but they're not always um the, the antagonist is the creature from the trailer the kind of destiny 2 looking creature with a kind of white mask the white spec op suit and they appropriately call her ghost and i know it's her because we learned this like I, I would say 10 seconds after we just we see ghost for the first time she's played by hannah john Kamen, who we last saw in ready player one i don't think i would have mentioned her in the ready player one review because she wasn't a major character but she was in the movie and she was pretty threatening and she's pretty awesome here i think she has a pretty interesting story although her motivations are more personal than anything else walton goggins joins as a southern gangster and when i say southern i mean like not like a hillbilly hick but like you know he has kind of smooth texas drawl and he's a treat in most movies he's in although he's used as little more than comic relief here and I, i need to say that's not a bad thing because the comedy is where this movie shines it has some impressive action sequences like we saw some of it in the trailer where you see uh Hope run along the side of a knife when she's shrunk down and they use that effect to like really great to make great action sequences, right? Like there's scenes where, you know, she's shrinking to dodge a a punch and then she regrows, punches the guy, shrinks again, flies around, punches the guy, and Ant-Man does it too. And it's all really cool, honestly. But the jokes and the riffing off the jokes lies at the heart of the whole movie, and it's pretty wonderful, honestly. Randall Park, for example, is brilliant as an awkward FBI agent who isn't afraid to kind of be kind of feeling-y, you know, and Michael Pena, David Dust, malkian and t- rapper T.I. all return from the first movie as Lang's ex-criminal buddies are trying to start a business, and Pena's character, Luis, is as talkative as ever, and I think the sequence involving Luis being drugged is probably the highlight of the entire movie. It is wildly funny. He is probably, if, if Evangeline Lilly is the highlight in terms of the action sequences and the badassery, Paul Rudd and the other guys are really cool too. But then on the other hand, Michael Pena is the highlight in terms of the comedy. They're the ones that steal the movie. And they're the ones that, they're the reasons you go see this movie. I know everyone likes Paul Rudd because he's very charming and it's, he kind of has that aw shucks thing going for him. But While he is the kind of glue that holds them all together, Lily and Pina are awesome. They're so much fun. And I'll say this. The Marvel formula has gotten a little heavy as of late, okay? For obvious reasons. They want the situation with Thanos to feel weighty, and it should, right? Because it's the wrapping up this 10-plus-year arc at this point, right? But even so, it's nice to kind of take a break from that from time to time, and Ant-Man and the Wasp uses the comedy that it it, it does so well to disarm the audience. And even if it is only until next year, because the movie's coming out now that Ant-Man and the Wasp is in theaters, the Marvel movies coming out between now and Avengers 4 are really just Captain Marvel. And Captain Marvel has already been confirmed to be another movie that takes place before Avengers Infinity War. I say another because Ant-Man and the Wasp also takes place before Avengers Infinity War, although the after-credits scene, if you're curious as to when this takes place or how it takes place or how it relates, I should say, to Avengers Infinity War, then, well, you know, you don't have to really wait very long. You wait until the end of the credits, and you will get your answer. It is pretty awesome. The reaction of the crowd is, again, pretty friggin' awesome. I really enjoyed it. It's hard not to see it coming. I mean, especially if you know that this movie takes place before infinity war but in that sense it doesn't make the the little after credits scene any less revealing and there are two as usual there's one at the end of the kind of regular ant-man credits and then there's another one at the end of the regular credits right although the end, the one at the end of the regular credits isn't quite as important it's um more a little a little more silly than the than the one right after the kind of mid the mid credits scene i, I suppose they're being called but as far as marvel movies go it's probably not the most dynamic one but it is one of the more entertaining ones, certainly one of the more funny ones. It's worth your time. If you're a fan of the MCU, you're probably going to see it anyways. But if you're on the fence, I think even if you haven't seen the other Marvel movies, I think you would enjoy this one because it, it's very adept at telling the story of the first one and the and the events that relate to Ant-Man very easily. And like I mentioned before, it has some great comedy, great action. I think anyone who goes to see this movie will be relatively entertained. And that's all you can really ask for, for the, from the Marvel movies at this point because they're all leading up to Avengers 4 next summer, right? So in that sense, go see Ant-Man and the Wasp. You'll enjoy yourself and you'll probably thank me afterwards. Okay, that is it for reviews today. You'll notice each review is a little shorter than normal as I try to get to uh, there about, let's say, 10 minutes a movie, unless we have a guest or something, but you can probably tell the illness hasn't quite gone away. So hopefully in the next two weeks it'll be all good again. Speaking of guests, actually, I do have a guest lined up in the next few episodes, so keep that on your radar. I know I've been promising it for a while, right? So it's nice to actually have it done for once, but that'll be a fun thing to get going. The next podcast actually has the potential for four movies as well, weirdly enough, as Sorry to Bother You, Boots Riley's new movie with uh, Keith Stanfield, Tessa Thompson, a lot of other people. That comes out uh, this coming week, Hotel Transylvania 3, Summer Vacation comes out this coming week, and of course, The Rock's new movie, Skyscraper, comes out this week as well, so that's all in a few days, you know, less than a week, I would say, while The Equalizer 2 with Denzel Washington comes out the following week, so... When I record the next one, we might have a jam-packed episode as well. For now, though, this has been episode 25 of the Showtime Movie Podcast. Thank you for being patient. And as always, thank you for listening. Have a good night.